Hello, I'm Nick Spencer, and you're listening to the fifth series of Reading Our Times, the podcast that introduces you to the books and the ideas that are shaping the world today. Listen with us, and we'll explore the impact of the sexual revolution, the death of civility, the meaning of evolution, the question of why some countries succeed and others fail, and the effect of the digital world on our brains. When we at Theos asked YouGov to poll the UK population last year, we found that 74% of people agreed that there is strong, reliable evidence to support the theory of evolution. Given that 13% of people said they neither agreed nor disagreed and 8% didn't have an opinion, that meant that in actual fact only 6% of Britons disagree with the theory. So far, so good. Fears that the UK is turning into the US with large-scale anti-evolutionism taking root appear to be largely groundless. However, this is only part of the story. What exactly do people understand by the theory of evolution? After all, evolution, like most big ideas, especially most big scientific ideas, is more discussed than understood. And it doesn't do itself any favours here. Over the years, it's been used to ground the idea of competition, but also of cooperation. The idea of inevitable progress, but also the complete lack of any progress. Evolution is much mythologised and much misunderstood. So what does it mean? What, if any, lessons can we draw from it? Or, perhaps more realistically, what lessons have we been drawing from it that we shouldn't have been? Simon Conway Morris is Emeritus Professor of Evolutionary Paleobiology at the University of Cambridge and the author of a number of books on evolution, the most recent of which is entitled From Extraterrestrials to Animal Minds, Six Myths of Evolution. Simon, welcome to Reading Our Times. Thank you very much. Your book picks out six myths, and I hope we manage to touch on all of them. But I want to begin with the first two, because I think they're the ones that are most likely to slip under the radar altogether. These are the myths that evolution is a purely random affair and that it's completely limitless, effectively, that life is just a kind of directionless drift through genes. Before you explain why they're myths, tell us what those views are and where do they come from? So in this particular thing, I'm referring to areas which are long overdue for, to use a rather vulgar expression, a really good kicking. In other words, uh, as we say, to re-examine as best we can. And to that approximation, if we think about evolution, it is indeed thought to be pretty well open-ended. I mean, naturally, there are constraints of gravity or the viscosity of water or anything like that. And similarly, there's a periodic table. And therefore, you'll find probably that carbon is the atom of choice for building bodies and phosphorus is the atom of choice for energy conversion and so on and so forth. So in thinking about the constraints of evolution and what may or may not be possible, one observation, which is actually, I think, becoming almost depressingly well accepted. This is a phenomenon known as evolutionary convergence. That is, from more or less different starting points in the history of life, we end up with pretty much the same solution. And everybody says, what's your favorite example? And I will use it, of course, and that is the camera eye, camera Mm. eye of the vertebrates, of which you and I are proud members, and those of the squid and the octopus, which belong to close relatives of the snail and the earthworm. And if you look at the construction of the eye of the octopus and ourselves, it's not identical. That's rather important because they're both products of evolution. 
But on the other hand, in the ways that they differ, funnily enough, they substitute, if you like, one trick for another. And to the inexperienced observer, they look almost identical. In other words, you have a lens suspended between two chambers with a retina at the back and so on and so forth. And yet we know beyond reasonable doubt that the common ancestor of ourselves and that octopus, which looked rather like a slug in the Cambrian Oceans, would have had at most an eye spot. Mm. Therefore, this development of the Camerae is a compelling example of convergent evolution. And that's because effectively on a planet like ours, there are only so many different ways in this instance that you can see. Is that right? That's correct. Of course, there are many, many sorts of eyes. There are probably 40 or 50. I mean, some use mirrors and so forth and so on. But by and large, the principal ones are either our so-called camera eye or what the insects use, the so-called compound eye, where you have many lenses aggregated together. And just as the uh, camera eye is convergent, so actually as it happens, it's a compound eye. And more particularly, it's not at all surprising, we must assume that practically every planet with a biosphere is orbiting some sort of sun, and light is cheap. There's a great deal of it, and mm. we don't know whether all planets, for instance, rotate. Some might be tidally locked, so it's always daylight on one side and, and darkness on the other. But in any diurnal environment such as ours, night follows day and so forth. And indeed, we will find animals which adapt to night vision. There are some insects, for example, which can fly on moonless nights. This is absolutely extraordinary. I mean, the number of photons is, is so much less. But be that as it may, these suggest there are general rules of engagement in the evolution of life. And that's really important, isn't it? Because the example that's sometimes cited here, Stephen Jay Gould's famous analogy that were you to rewind the tape of life and play it again, you get a completely different story, completely different picture. And that's not the case, is it? Well, it might be the case. To begin with, there are various suggestions as to how evolution, if not derailed, is redirected in radically new directions. One of them is not technical, but needs a tiny bit of unpacking. And this refers to what we call bottlenecks, that is areas where the combination of circumstances to produce a more advanced form are so particular and peculiar that the likelihood of them coming together at any one time is vanishingly small. The classic example is the transition between a sort of bacterial cell, what we call a prokaryote, and the more advanced eukaryotic cell. And indeed, not only is it a dramatic transformation, because one then moves more or less to the possibility of multicellularity, plants, animals, fungi, but also that eukaryotic cell is considerably more complex, not least the way in which it exchanges genetic material, aka sex. But one can argue from various uh, lines of evidence that the likelihood of a eukaryotic cell evolving is actually very high. And one, which is too often neglected in my opinion, is that actually many of the building blocks you need to make something of a more advanced type have actually evolved in the more primitive form. Those proteins actually originally evolved uh, in microbial organisms and have been co-opted for their new function. So many of the building blocks to make a eukaryotic cell have already evolved in the prokaryotic cell. Yeah. So to return to Stephen Jay Gould's analogy, it would be that rewind the tape of life and play it again. Things look different, but there are features, perhaps even organisms that bear an uncanny resemblance 
to what we see around us today. There's a kind of uh, freedom within a certain order. Is that fair? I think that's a very fair way of putting it. And, and I'm also pleased to use, use the word uncanny in as much as when people refer to examples of convergent evolution, again and again, the adjectives they use are just such words as uncanny, surprising, and all the rest of it. And you sort of think, well, you know, what, what's the problem? You know, this is, this is Darwin at work. This is adaptation. Come on, grow up. Yes. So indeed, in the broad envelope of possibilities, it's almost limitless diversity. But in point of fact, again and again, when you look more closely, what's evolved in one group has evolved in another. And mm. I myself am very hard pushed to think of things which have only evolved once. There are some examples, but by and large, the things we're interested in, which might ultimately allow this sort of conversation to happen, that is a sapient, bipedal, mammal-like form, I think on the broad scale of things is very much on the cards, wherever you are in the universe. Yeah. And I suspect one of the reasons why people do use that word uncanny is because they have swallowed hook, line and sinker, the idea of randomness. That is repeatedly associated with evolution. In fact, it's a, it's a completely random process. But unpack for us why it, it is simultaneously random in one regard, and yet at the same time, the idea of calling the whole process random and therefore without order and direction is misleading. Well, I'm, fortunately, I can't answer that question for a very simple reason. I'm not a statistician. But the way you can look at it is if you look at anybody's individual history, you know, who you met, who your friends are, and all the rest of it, most of them were almost certainly the result of just where you happen to be on a certain day. But in point of fact, if you look at large populations, you'll find that there are recurrent similarities which emerge again and again. And there are, if you like, deeper patterns of organization. And I think that's what most fascinates me about convergent evolution. It's not so much the nuts and bolts of adaptation, the sort of things which Richard Dawkins has indeed celebrated, and rightly so, I hasten to say. It's more what, if anything, is the deeper order of organization. And this shouldn't come as any great surprise, because, of course, if you're a chemist or more particularly a physicist, one is aware that underneath the periodic table, for instance, there are deeper levels of reality. And in a way which is sort of frustratingly familiar in biology, there's this thing called life, which has mm. this extraordinary sort of construction between chaos, something like a gas, and something like a crystal. It's highly organized, but not too highly organized. It's fluid, but not too fluid. And not for a moment am I what some people would call a vitalist. But nevertheless, there is something even uncanny about life itself. Mm. This ability to sort of maintain itself in the face of extraordinary environmental pressures. I think the third of your myths is one that a lot of people will be familiar with because it's got something to do with dinosaurs. It's the myth of mass extinction. It's very important to say is that mass extinctions aren't at all mythical, but the lessons that people have drawn from them head towards the mythical. Give us some examples of the big mass extinctions and what people imagine they caused. The reality of mass extinctions is not in doubt, and the evidence comes from the geological record. And to the first approximation, apart from the occasional awkward asteroid hitting the planet, they seem to be linked to episodes of mass volcanism, huge volcanic eruptions. And mass extinctions are so severe that only a few lucky survivors creep through these dreadful times and find themselves in effectively a depopulated planet. And they say, oh, well, thank you very much. We got through. Right. Let's take over. 
Now, there is quite a lot of truth in that in various ways, not least the times for recovery from a mass extinction generally are more rapid than people have once thought. Things do bounce back really quickly, uh, geologically speaking, perhaps maybe even less than 100,000 years. But the more important point, I think, is that with regard to what's going on before the mass extinction, in point of fact, the geological record, I think, fairly clearly shows that the main players are already moving into position. So the classic example is the death of the dinosaurs, Mm. asteroid impact in Mexico, massive volcanism in India, bad news for everybody, the planet goes into crisis. The dinosaurs go extinct. The mammals seize their chance. Everybody's happy, except the dinosaurs, perhaps. But what is perfectly well known, but less acknowledged, is that the mammals themselves are already diversifying at the time of the dinosaurs, not as bats or whales or kangaroos, but as the first steps towards those major groups which now define the mammals. And from that perspective, what I think this means is that to the first approximation, mammals are better than dinosaurs. They are warm-blooded and they tend to have larger brains. They are often manipulative in terms of their forelimbs. They are socially more complex. Many of them have evolved tools independently. So my view would be that a counterfactual world where the asteroid misses, the volcanoes are turned off, the dinosaurs carry on, is that over the next 50 million years, there would be a steady erosion of the suzerainty of the dinosaurs because the mammals are taking over the world. Mm. To that, one can add as a little aside that, of course, the dinosaurs didn't go extinct. They are still with us, and we're delighted to call them the birds. So Mm. the birds come from the theropods, and indeed, when we look at the birds in many respects, such as warm-bloodedness and in some ways vocalization and other such things, they show a whole set of gratifyingly convergent similarities with ourselves. So effectively, in that instance, the asteroid acts as a catalyst. Precisely. It accelerates what's going to happen. And the great advantage is it gives you, I would suggest, something like 50 million years for nothing. Well, that helpfully leads us on to discussion of humans via the myth that, as we've said, no asteroid, no humans. And that's seemingly not true at all. But the discussion of humans itself begs questions around randomness. Now, I don't know if you've read Sapiens, a wildly popular book by Yuval Noah Hariri, but he begins by making a big deal of the fact that not so long ago the Earth was thick with numerous different species of humans and that we, Homo sapiens, were just the ones that happened to get lucky. What are your views on that? I think you could look at it at least two ways. The principal one would be, in fact, I don't, in one sense, really care you know, it's it's that species which gets it or this species which does it, that's fine. You know, it it happened to be us. The point is that when you look at the evolution of homonyms, as they're called, over roughly the last two million years, give or take, there are pretty clear directions in what's happening. And these are obvious in preceding species, things like Homo erectus, Homo ergaster, and the rest of it, which lead to increasingly capable bipedality, larger brains, more and more sophisticated tools. Certainly by probably half a million years ago, discuss, discuss, they're probably using fire. Probably 300,000 years ago, and there is, remember, not Homo sapiens, there are preceding species, and they're using this red pigment called ochre, 
And the likelihood is amongst the many things it's used for is for body ornamentation. Mm. And we can't prove that because skin doesn't preserve terribly well. But if they were using it, then that is hinting at the symbolic expression. It is signaling something to somebody who will understand something which to an outsider would be incomprehensible. Mm. And of course, apart from anything else, it's not that all the other species go extinct. From one perspective, that's correct. But of course, one species evolves into another one. And is it not also the case that there's evidence that we Homo sapiens interbred with Neanderthals and we still retain some of their genes? It is true in as much as it applies to a significant number of the populations, including yourself. So you and I, I'm pleased to say, because of our fairly recent history, have roughly 3 to 4% Neanderthal DNA in us. I haven't read this area in detail for a couple of years, I'm afraid, but I believe it's the case that the Maasai people in Kenya in particular, also have Neanderthal DNA, which, of course, hints at the possibility that at some other time they were not in the location they were. The Neanderthals themselves are particularly interesting because they are a separate species, albeit so closely related to us that interbreeding is possible. And there are separate species that also show evidence for some of the kind of behavioural traits that we most associate with us. So is there not evidence of art and burial amongst Neanderthals in a way that we think is characteristic of Homo sapiens? I believe there is. I'm not the expert. The burial of uh, by Neanderthals, of Neanderthals, has been controversial over many years, but it's pretty clear now that it was intentional burial. The art is a bit more difficult because there is almost certainly Neanderthal art, but it doesn't seem to have the finesse of the art which we associate with Homo sapiens. The Neanderthals are fascinating. Alas, it's not time to unpick all of these in any sort of detail, but there's something which is maddeningly similar to us and other things which seem to be strangely different. Mm. And one could look at this in a rather pejorative way and say, well, they weren't quite up to it. But an alternative, which I find far more tantalizing, is that actually the way they saw the world was subtly different from the way we see it. It's clear enough that the Neanderthals were pretty much as brainy as we are. And although, again, it's controversial, the Neanderthals had a wide distribution, but the evidence suggests that certainly in Europe, they underwent a sort of cultural revolution around about 40 to 50,000 years ago. And that was independent of Homo sapiens. In other words, really to reiterate what I mentioned a moment ago, I don't really care too much which species gets to where we want to be. It happened to be us, but you know, even if it wasn't amongst Homo, then some other group of apes, sooner or later, in my opinion, would have become hominins. You jumped my gun there. That was exactly my next question. We've talked about evolutionary convergence, say, when it comes to eyes. Is it your view that a similar process of convergence is at work, whereby, another counterfactual, we are wiped out 50, 100,000 years ago, rewind the tape, roll it forward again, Two Neanderthals are having a conversation on reading our times about the history of evolution and so on and so forth. Do you think that effectively our species converges on these particular ends? Well, it should do. And in fact, when I've been writing earlier on converging evolution, that's been my sort of take-home message again and again. So let us say, just for the sake of argument, that the whole genus Homo, which includes the Neanderthals, they disappear, never mind why. And then out there in the savannah, or perhaps in South America, it doesn't matter too much. There's another group of primates, 
which will start the process again of building themselves towards something human-like. And I think in terms of evolution, that's perfectly plausible because we've seen it happen many times independently in any case. But more significantly, there's one crucial difference in as much as you and I are exchanging the conversation using language. And the received wisdom, of course, is that our predecessors used vocalizations, which, of course, they do. And these are the rudiments of language. But it's far from clear to me that that's really the case. And the fact remains, embarrassingly or otherwise, that the difference between ourselves and the other animals is immense. But the problem is, as I see it, is that when we look at the animals and we look at their sentience, Again and again, things which appeared to be characteristically human-like in, if you like, some fairly primary, primitive, vestigial state on further investigation turn out, in fact, not to be that sort of cognitive capacity at all. I'll give you one example, if I might. And this is due with the crows. And this is useful because the crows are birds and therefore their cognitive capacity is pretty well independent of ours in terms of convergence. And everybody knows they're smart. They have quite big brains and they do clever things. Uh, New Caledonian crows know how to make tools and things like that. So we're, mm. not, we're not talking them down at all. But one of the tricks goes back to the Greek fable of Aesop. And here we have the thirsty crow, which cannot access the water in a jug and therefore quickly realizes that by picking up stones, drops it into the uh, into the jug. And so that the level of the water slowly rises. So eventually, after a great deal of stone dropping, the thirsty crow is no longer thirsty, fine and large. So now we move to the laboratory and we do the same sorts of tricks whereby we encourage by training, mind you, that the crow can drop the stones into a test tube full of water and there, just out of reach, are tasty morsels. Aesop is confirmed, the crow has its treat. And that's good and it looks really impressive. But of course, we are experimenters and we play mean tricks. Like, for instance, we have a series of tubes, some of which are interconnected beneath the platform, which the crow cannot see, and thereby produce a U-shape, but other ones are not. Mm. And it's pretty clear in the final analysis, the crow will learn how to do it and it will learn quite quickly. But what it can't do is work out causally what is actually happening it cannot join the dots yes and this seems to be true not only of these smart birds but also the primates yes but let's try a counterfactual here again some cosmic experimenter plays the same trick on us a couple of hundred thousand years ago we're in a much more primitive cognitive state and we, we fail the test that doesn't mean that at some point or other we don't develop the cognitive apparatus to join the causal dots and understand what's going on. Doesn't that experiment show that at the moment, almost self-evidently, crows or you know, chimpanzees or whatever else can't match anything approaching our capacity to join the causal dots, but that they still might at some point? Well, in principle, they might. And in a certain sense, from an evolutionary perspective, what we have achieved was achieved through an evolutionary process, at least in terms of history. But one could make the observation to begin with that, well, we might be lucky to be first on the block, but there's been an awful lot of cognition going on from tens of millions of years. Mm. And not once has anything appeared like this. And people might say, well, it's because we've got exceptionally large brains, and that is true. But I, I think myself, in a way, the humans are the worst possible group to study themselves. It's almost impossible to get out of our own skins. Mm. And it's absolutely natural to have empathy, if you like, with animals. And it doesn't go 
down too well in some groups of investigators to suggest that what have been identified as empathy amongst animals is nothing of the sort. I do find this really, really interesting because we had France Duval on oh. the show last series or the series before. I'm a huge fan of his work. I find it very persuasive. And as you will know, he argues you know, on the basis of, of a career as a very eminent primatologist that primates do show compassion. They do show empathy. Some of them show a sense of fairness and justice. They do have cognitive powers and significant ones at that. You're saying you disagree. Well, to begin with, I wouldn't disagree with them an iota in as much as our evolutionary connections are as clear as daylight. That's not in dispute at all. What does strike me, though, is that over the last few years, again and again, things which have been identified as human-like characteristics on further investigation fail the test. There are one or two very telling examples. One is, I've mentioned very briefly, to do with language. I might be able to come back to that in a moment. But one which is striking has struck me as being particularly instructive is what's referred to as mirror self-recognition. Yeah. And this is the thing where you have animals where you put a mark on your forehead and um, then the animals, they might be asleep or you might have lightly anesthetized them or something. They wake up and there's a mirror in the cage and they wander across. And after a moment, they thought, no, that doesn't look right at all. Hang on. And then, you know, it's identified. So by and large, mirror self-recognition has been identified in, in a whole series of animals. So elephants, in fact. And so you need a gigantic mirror. But there we go. That's, very you know, tough mirror that's well, Very that's tough. <laughs> absolutely. You know, you don't get that down in a local shop, I can tell you. But the really crucial observation is that mirror self-recognition is effectively only found in animals which are referred to as enculturated. They're animals which have lived in close association with humans. And it's a curious fact that these animals, be they elephants or chimpanzees or bonobos or orangutans, are actually smarter than their chums in the jungle. Mm. And that in its own way suggests that they're not stupid. You know, they observe. But more crucially, when they extend these experiments to try and teach animals things like sign language or elementary arithmetic, it's not that they don't necessarily achieve that, but the amount of training they require is absolutely exhaustive. Yeah. So my way of thinking says, well, what, what are we actually learning here? Well, we're learning two things. First of all, that the brain itself is relatively plastic. And if you keep on drumming something to an animal's mind, it will probably sort of change in that sort of way. But more particularly, what they never achieve is what we achieve. So this leads to my last heading, really, is one of transcendence, because that's where the book gently leads us. And I think it's to me, not surprisingly, the most interesting area. Retracing out our steps, the popular myths are that evolution is random, it's chance, we just got lucky, could have been another species. Don't read too much into where we are, into what we think is real, into what is capable, because, you know, could have happened in any other way. And the myths that you have been kind of unpicking in the book are that, yes, of course, there's randomness there and they're not without substance, but the conclusions they're drawing from them are erroneous. And you lead us to the point where you say that humans have entered new realms of ideas and imagination where the unobservable is real, where the way the universe becomes self-aware. These worlds of meanings are not invented or imposed, but discovered. And I think that's the critical point, isn't it? The point A is that, well, anything that we think is meaning is just self-generated. It's just invented because it's all random and it's all chance. Whereas your picture, as I understand it, is that in actual fact, as you say, rather than mind being trapped in our skulls, 
we intuit how mind can be accessed and interpreted by our brains rather than being a derivative of neural processing. In other words, mind is there before us, drawing us to it. Uh, well, only one answer. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. A very fair summary. And I mean, again, I, I've, I have to sort of insist that there's, I'm pleased to say, I'm, I'm, take, I'm a Cambridge professor, don't you know? You know, there's not a scrap of originality in any of this. You know, it's not, not that I'm the first person at all to suggest that mind in some sense is either a quote, so to speak, out there or universal, all the rest of it. And I, I suppose so far as I've sort of tried to focus on this very recently, I've been rather sort of influenced by a number of people in this regard, is that all these attempts to understand consciousness, as, as I say, latent in our neural system, totally miss the point because consciousness, again, this is a canard and it's really a conversation best fueled by two really strong gin and tonics, or maybe three if things are getting desperate. Consciousness is something different. It's just totally different. It's not amenable to this sort of investigation. And my own view is that if you are a thoroughgoing materialist, uh, which, uh, as you might guess, I'm not, and neither, I suspect, are you, uh, then this is an area which is never going to be open to investigation. How we proceed is, is almost entirely beyond me as well. I think you're being unduly modest there because, yes, of course, metaphysicians and philosophers and indeed many people who work in humanities may have been discussing these things for a long time. But I imagine you're in a minority of evolutionary paleobiologists who hold this view. And what's really striking is the fact that you kind of navigated, converged almost, on this particular view, but through a very different path. Well, yes, I'm afraid so. I, I plead guilty. You know, it's, uh, I mean, all one can say, and I, I mustn't go off at too many tangents, is that I've been extraordinarily lucky in many, many ways, of course, and had a career which has taken me from just hacking my way through the Burgess Shale and various other things to trying to explore various other areas. But I fear the cases, and this is true in so many areas, that it's this sort of heterodoxy is usually stifled. And academia, I don't want to go on about this at great length, but I'm rather depressed at the sort of groupthink which one sees in some academic circles. Let's end with your last myth, because it's quite fun, the myth of aliens or myth of extraterrestrials. And give me your answer to what's known as the Fermi paradox. In other words, if there are any, where are they? Uh, indeed. Where are they? Thank you. Uh, well, this is Henry Enrico Fermi, a very famous Italian physicist, and he was having this conversation with his chums, and he said, where are they? And that's now construed, as you mentioned, Nick, as, you know, a lack of aliens. In point of fact, I think he was wondering more about the likelihood or otherwise of interstellar travel. But what we now know, of course, is that the, the number of Earth-like planets in principle in this galaxy alone is just stupendously large. And by no means all of them will be in a position relative to their suns to actually be habitable or habitable for a protracted period. But even so, the numbers are pretty big. And if we make some reasonable assumptions about the evolution of life and the evolution of convergence and things like that, then there ought to be humanoids at least sometimes. Now, if we assume that intelligence evolves, and if we further assume that sooner or later they decide to go on a galactic diaspora, walkabout through the galaxy, then in principle, we shouldn't be here. We'd have been colonized long, long beforehand. Now, there is no evidence that at all. Uh, there are many other lines of investigation which suggest that it is curiously quiet out there. And there may be many, many reasons why this is the case. My view is actually there probably are aliens of a sort, 
but it's going back to these orthogonal dimensions, which we as much intuit as actually know about. And there are all sorts of strange stories all over the place. And one cannot help but feel, and here one you can see, I'm not grasping at straws, but it's an area which is so far beyond most science that people feel embarrassed to talk about it. But I, I frankly couldn't care less now. It's fine. So if we think we're going to just explore the galaxy and find other civilizations, I think that's pie in the sky. They're there, but we don't recognize them. The book is called From Extraterrestrials to Animal Minds, Six Myths of Evolution. Simon Conway Morris, thank you very much indeed for speaking to Reading Our Times. My great pleasure. Many thanks. Next week, I'll be speaking to Stefan Durkin about his book Gambling on Development, Why Some Countries Win and Others Lose. It's almost by definition that countries that are poor don't really have much capital in the broad sense, whether it's human capital, physical capital, or need natural resources. So the incentives for a political elite to change are very little. You've been listening to Reading Our Times from the think tank Theos. It's produced by Phil Bodger. Our team includes Lizzie Harvey, Daniel Turner and Elizabeth Oldfield. Special thanks to Nina Humphreys, who composed our theme tune and all the music. You can subscribe to Reading Our Times on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And you can also find us on our website, theosthinktank.co.uk, where you can find all the episodes from the series and the previous series and leave feedback. Don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes. It'll help other people find the podcast.